Give us a little countdown. Two, one. Hello, Dylan. How are you? I'm uh, great. Thanks for having me, Aiden. Yeah. So, Dylan, you are co-founder and CEO of MindState Mind State Design Labs. I'm sorry. Based out of uh, Western PA, down there a little bit southwest of Pittsburgh. Um, before we go there, though, definitely want to you know have you come on and tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, you know what should we uh, should, what should we know about you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thanks. Uh, so my professional background started in finance. Uh, I did a lot of mergers and acquisitions at the beginning of my career and then moved into venture capital. Uh, so I worked for the internal venture arm of uh, a large hospital system and insurance company out here on the East Coast, headquartered in Pittsburgh. Um, did a wide variety of venture investing in different kinds of modalities. Uh, there was health tech, med devices, small molecules, gene therapy, uh, really across the board, uh, also in the sense of indications um, in mm. different disease areas. I had the investing role, but then also would take an operations role when we did spin out companies, uh, companies that were almost nothing but science, just ready to be commercialized. So I would help uh, stand the company up and, and get it off the ground. Mm. Um, so that that's my background um, in uh I guess summer of 2021, uh, started Mind State Design Labs, went through the Y Combinator Accelerator in uh, the Bay Area, and uh, uh, I guess since then have been working on bringing psychedelic therapeutics uh, to people who need them for uh, mental health disorders. Now, what what is Y Combinator? I'm not, I'm not really familiar with that. Like, what is that? Yeah, more, more of a, a business niche thing. Um, so an accelerator is an organization that takes uh, early stage ideas or teams or startups and uh, is often one of the first uh, checks uh, in the, the round. Hmm. Um, and there's there's typically some education around how to run a company and how to raise funding and and uh, some diligence and they help with connections. Uh, so Y Combinator, I think, was maybe the first, uh, probably the, the most commonly known of those uh, types of accelerators. Mm -hmm. Now, initially, when you like first graduated, because you graduated from RMU, Robert Morris, um, with your with your MBA, like how did you like how do you like get into I don't know like the science field if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like how do you like initially do that with like a business background? Like I'm really in the dark here about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think coming from uh, business and investing, it gives you a bit of optionality to go mm. into different industries. So at the very beginning of my career, I, I saw manufacturing companies and oil and gas companies and tech companies and, and just really any industry here. Um, and it gives you an idea of what you find most interesting and where you want to invest your time. Uh, and I, I I heard some advice from, uh, I don't remember who it was, some venture capitalist at some point who said that the most important decision you can make in your career is to find uh, a big wave. What mm. is the thing that over the course of the next 30 years is, is just going to explode? Mm. Um, uh, so if, if you were the best typewriter salesman in the world in, I don't know, 1980, you probably didn't have the greatest career, but if you were a mediocre computer programmer, you, you did pretty well. Nice. Um, and so it, it seemed to me that the uh, 21st century was going to be the century of, of biotech. Um, mm -hmm. It just inspired me that uh, by better understanding of the human body and the human mind, we can uh, make a real difference in people's lives. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so I, I kind of have two questions then for you. Uh, one is like, how, first of all, how are you? What is what is Mind State Design Labs like? What is what is the what sets you guys apart from other like? Well, one, I guess psychedelic companies, but also just pharmaceutical companies. Like, what what is the distinction? But also too. You know, how were you approached to start this startup? Like, cause like, I don't know, like 
again, like if you're even if, because obviously you're kind of the business end of it. So were you, were you one initially with the idea or were you approached by someone else and say, Hey, look, I think we should get into psychedelics or, yeah. So how did that all start? Yeah. So when I was in my venture investing role, um, I, I would just uh, stay abreast of what was happening on the cutting edge of medicine. Um, and this area of psychedelics was one thing that just really intrigued me. It didn't have any investments in the space, um, but uh, had my own personal experience. I was an early adopter. There were, there were some uh, ways you could legally get psychedelic experience through some religious protection and some different mm -hmm. uh, jurisdictions. Um, and, and so I saw that have a, a huge impact on my own life. And so I saw the, the both the promise of that type of therapy and also the mechanism. Um, and so I had just been uh, reaching out to people in the field, just learning about the field. Um, and uh, my scientific co-founder, Dr. Thomas Ray, was one who uh, really shared uh, my vision and, and my, uh, my, my obsession with this one particular thing, which is the the variety of psychedelic experience. So these drugs are sometimes seen as one monolithic entity. It's it's mm. just hallucinations, but they these are a number of different classes of compounds and even compounds within one class can have very different effects. Um, and so what really inspired me and what's our, our mission at Mind State Design Labs is to map the biological basis of that immense variety of uh, different states of consciousness that, that can be induced for therapeutic purposes using mm. psychedelics. Um, and so that's what really uh, makes us stand apart. We recognize the acute subjective experience of the non-ordinary state of consciousness mm. as being central to therapeutic outcomes. And what we care about is specifically designing the drug, designing the experience to specifically induce that state of consciousness that is going to be most therapeutic for a given disease indication. That's really cool. So this, so how does this, this might be proprietary, I don't know, but like, how does the process work? So let's say like, um, I don't know, say, I guess you have patients, right? I guess they come and say, Hey, look, I have like, or I guess maybe you do some testing to see like, I don't know, like, how does the process work to see like, what's, I don't want to say yeah. what's wrong with them, but you know what I'm saying? And then like, you like, I don't know, give them psychedelic, like, how does that work? Right. So we're a preclinical stage company. So we're uh, in animal testing right now, just moving okay. into large animals and we'll start human trials, uh, hopefully file our IND later this year and uh, get into humans. Awesome. But the, the way that psychedelic therapy works is um, uh, once these things are approved and, and not many of these types of therapies have been approved, but uh, mm. once they're approved, they will be prescribed by a, a physician um, and the patients will typically have uh, a, a, a period of preparation. So there's work with a therapist. Uh, often these drugs themselves are not the treatments. They're used as adjuncts to psychotherapy or adjuncts to some type of therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so you would, you would have the patient come in, start the therapy. There would then be a session where the drug would actually be administered. Mm -hmm. And this is typically in a very controlled setting. So, you know, you're not at, at the typical uh, scenario you would think of for psychedelic consumption. You're mm -hmm. in a clinic with a medical professional uh, often uh, the patient will be laying down on a couch uh, with a blanket, often with eye shades. The, the goal is to reduce sensory information. Um, and the, the medical professional there is mostly there for psychological support, just, just mm. mostly there to uh, remind the patients that uh, if, if they start to experience anxiety, for example, that's, you know, they're in a safe place and everything's okay. Mm. Um, 
And, and that's really the, the process for psychedelic therapy, which is very different from your typical pharmaceutical where you just send a pill home. Um, and these do need to be supervised usually mm-hmm. uh, because there is some profound change to consciousness, to mood or cognition or, or emotion in some mm-hmm. sense. Um, so that's what psychedelic therapy looks like. Um, and what we're working on is, uh, is more on the preclinical side uh, in silico and in vitro and in vivo studies where we're, we're drawing this map first. So from a drug development perspective, fundamentally, we're a target discovery company. Okay. Uh, you have to do yep. target discovery before you do drug development. You want to know what sites in the brain you need to design a drug to hit before you can design the drug to, to do that. Um, and so that's where we are. We, uh, I took a drug development class, uh, my, I think last spring. Super, super, super fun class. But uh, man, medicinal chemistry it's pretty fascinating how like different little changes in a structure can like ex- like extremely change like the uh, outcome of a of a of a drug. It's really fascinating honestly. Um now how like how competitive is this is the psychedelic market? Is it cuz I I guess fundamentally if you're you're not in it for the the money but also like just generally help people, I'm I'm sure that makes it easier. But like other other like like psychedelic companies let's say across the nation or even like the east coast or yeah. like how does that work yeah absolutely hundreds uh psychedelics uh companies um mm. uh, a lot of those are split between different areas of the emerging industry so there mm. are drug development companies like us there are infrastructure companies building out the actual clinics needed to deliver this therapy um there's the uh more of the tech focused companies building out the uh, the supporting infrastructure of the IT to operate these clinics, um, many different areas here. But but the psychedelics industry has really boomed. I, I think, um, uh, don't quote me on this, but I, I think $2.5 billion, uh, in investment was the last uh, figure I saw. Mm-hmm. Um, so many publicly traded companies at this point, it's becoming a maturing industry. Um, so, uh, so yeah, d- definitely things have boomed as a result of some late stage clinical trials mm-hmm. uh, that have have uh, read out recently. So back in 2021, uh, when I, I started this, uh, it was a little bit more of a, a fringe industry still, uh, whereas mm-hmm. today it's uh, you know commonly viewed as an inevitability uh, by regulators, clinicians, and researchers in the space that uh, psychedelic therapy will will become uh, a thing in the near future. Mm-hmm. What what is like the history of psychedelics? Because like, wh- I mean, why is it? Why does it have such a like a negative connotation, like, like why, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, why, why do people care yeah. so much? Right. Well, the history goes back tens of thousands of years. Uh, mm. So indigenous societies have been using these compounds uh, for religious purposes, for medicinal purposes, uh, for, for long before uh, history began to be recorded. Um, but I, I think what happened is globalization in the 20th century, um, just uh, that the world becoming more connected and the Western societies all of a sudden rediscovering some of these uh, indigenous societies who were using psilocybin mushrooms, for example. Mm. Um, there was then the, the discovery of uh, LSD by Albert Hoffman. There were um, a number of events in the, uh, let's call it the early 20th century. Um, 
And many of these drugs actually were used as pharmaceuticals, were used as therapy drugs before they escaped onto the street. Um, but in the 1960s, these compounds became very associated with and entangled with uh, the, the certain subcultures. Uh, so the, the anti-war movement, um, and it, it became very much a, a political thing and a, a moral panic. Um, there's, uh, there's a famous quote from a high level Nixon administration official, um, saying that, uh, they knew they were lying about the drugs, but, uh, their enemies were hippies and black people and they, they couldn't arrest people for being hippies or black, but they could criminalize the drugs those people used mm. and invade their homes, arrest their leaders, so forth. So, uh, definitely political motivations there. Um, there's also very much a legitimate reason that, uh, the, these things became, um, uh, highly regulated. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and that is if you are in an uncontrolled environment and using improper doses with improper intentions, things can very much go wrong. So most of these compounds are very physically safe. They're not addictive, but uh, the hallucinations do happen and yeah. the anxiety does happen. And so if, if it's not in a controlled setting with a medical professional, um, things go wrong and things did go wrong. And, and yeah. so that led to the criminalization in the, the 70s. So I know you're not a physician, but I've done, um, I've, I've had two, two psychedelic experiences. I had those like mushroom chocolates and, uh, one of them was when I was in like Tampa Bay with my, my buddies, I took a piece and like, we were on the beach, like in Clearwater. I mean, it was like the, one of the best experiences of my life. Um, just the vibes were just immaculate. I don't like, um, I just, just so good. So it was a beautiful day out. And then the second time was. I was in a bar with like a few of my friends and the music was great. And like, we were just dancing, having a good time. Um, so in your experience, I mean, have you seen people with like bad trips on psychedelics? Like what is, what is like a bad trip even like look like? Yeah. Um, so it, it's highly dependent on dosing. It's mm -hmm. also dependent on, um, in psychedelics, we talk about set and setting. So the mindset of the individual, uh, their history, their expectations and intentions and vulnerabilities, um, and then the setting, the environment in which the experience occurs. So that this means the, uh, the social environments, also the cultural environments of the experience. Um, and, and so it sounds like in your experiences, many of those things were, were tilted in the right direction. Um, but for someone with a, uh, with, with a background of having mental health disorder, mm -hmm. uh, people who have trauma in their backgrounds, uh, even repressed trauma that's, uh, that they don't really consciously uh, know about, these kinds of things can come up in, in the trip. Mm -hmm. um, often also there's a period of anxiety uh, at the beginning of the trip. Um, so for, for psilocybin, for example, it's, it's roughly the first hour or so. Um, and if if it's in an environment where the the environment influences the trip, you know something could have happened uh, while, while you're you know out there with your friends. Um, there could be a law enforcement situation. There could be a medical emergency. There could just be a uh, some sort of social incident. You know, a mm -hmm. fight between friends. And so those kinds of things. Um, uh, the, the, the individual becomes much more impressionable and much more uh, reactive. Mm. Uh, and so any kind of negative input can, can quickly spiral out of control. Mm -hmm. Now, are there, are there certain, and, cause I know you guys are doing uh, like um, you guys are making target compounds. You guys, I'm sure you guys have some targets you guys are trying to make, uh, which I feel like a general audience might not know uh, what that is. I, I, what I will say though, is that you guys aren't, 
I assume you guys aren't selling like, let's say the traditional shrooms, psilocybin, um, LSD, DMT. I assume you guys aren't doing those things. You guys are doing like maybe relatively similar compounds, but not like those exactly. You know what I'm saying? Yes, correct. Yeah. So compounds that do engage similar targets, but uh, not not compounds you would have mm -hmm. heard of. And uh, so, okay. So how, like, what, what sort of disorders and diseases are you guys trying to target? Because I feel like there's definitely a spectrum. There's obviously going to be a spectrum of like mental disorder. And so, you know, for example, PTSD and the severity of PTSD in, in different people. So is there certain like targets you guys are trying to shoot for like on that spectrum or is it, are you guys trying to keep it more broad? So early studies with psychedelics indicate that they're likely applicable in a broad variety of mental health disorders, mm. uh, whichever ones are associated with basically a, a narrow mental and behavioral repertoire. Mm. So uh, depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, substance use disorders, um, anorexia, things uh, along those lines are, are very appropriate for psychedelics. On the other end of the spectrum, you, you have disorders like schizophrenia, uh, where the problem isn't narrowness, it's too much entropy. Um, and mm. because psychedelics increase the, that entropy because they dissolve boundaries and um, have those kinds of effects that they're not as appropriate for the, the schizophrenia spectrum of mental health disorders. Um, and so, yeah, we'll, we'll go after a number of different disorders with different compounds. That's really cool. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know that. That, that kind of makes sense now that like, um, people with schizophrenia wouldn't necessarily do well on, uh, let's say psychedelics. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. Um, now things like powerful trips, like dimethyltryptamine, um, which from what I've never taken, although I gotta be completely honest, I do want to try one day, um, where the, the trip is like, you know, 10, 15 minutes, I think, at least anecdotally, that's what I've heard. Um, powerful things like that. Is that also on the docket or is that like, mm, not really. Is that kind of like a, a, a singular case? Yeah, uh, DMT just had a readout. Uh, I believe this is, was January of uh, 2023. So very mm -hmm. recently here had a, a phase 2A trial readout. Um, uh, if Off the top of my head, I think it was something like a 56% remission in uh, depression, mm -hmm. uh, relatively small number of patients. But, but yes, all of these compounds, the classical psychedelics of DMT, LSD, psilocybin, and mescaline are all being explored in clinical trials. Uh, other common psychedelics like 5-MeO-DMT, uh, this mm. is the toad venom, um, uh, are also being explored as well as a number of new compounds. Isn't it true that our body produces DMT, like dimethyltryptamine? Is that true? Or am I making is that it? It is in, in very okay. small amounts and, and it's in plants as well. Um, mm. uh, it, as, as far as we know, it's in every plant we've, we've tested for DMT. So mm. you know, nature is drenched in DMT is, yeah. is the uh, classic quote. Yeah. <laughs> What do you, so in a perfect world, you know, let's say, let's say these, these, I'm going to be an optimist here. Let's say these, these trials go, you make it through human trials. Let's say that it's successful. What is like, what would be like the, what's the most ideal situation for you? Like, so you have clinics set up across these coasts, you have patients coming in. Um, I don't know, they get screened for whatever the disorder is and then they get their, um, their psychedelic. Is that kind of like the, the goal, the ultimate goal? 
Yes, we would interface with existing clinics. Um, mm -hmm. So so any psychiatrist could prescribe this uh, medication or, or the drug therapy uh, combination. Um, and so there would be clinics, not necessarily that, that we would own, but, but just any clinic across the world, uh, uh, probably more focused in the US and Europe in the short term, mm -hmm. uh, but hopefully expanding from there. Um, so yeah, we're, we're again, preclinical. So a, a number of years here before uh, our drugs, our, our second generation drugs start to make it to the market. But um, you do have esketamine, which is an enantiomer of ketamine uh, developed by Johnson & Johnson that is already on the market, um, not particularly psychedelic. And it, it's a dissociative, which is a subcategory mm. of uh, hallucinogens. Mm. But um, that's been approved already, has been for a few years here. We should probably see approval of MDMA in May of 2020. 24. Mm. Um, and so I think that's when you'll, you'll start seeing, uh, these things becoming a lot more common. Yeah. So how did you, uh, you know, did you, so did you grow up in the Pittsburgh area or where you like, where are you originally from? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, born in North Carolina, but, uh, raised in Pittsburgh. It's yeah. Still here. yeah. Pittsburgh. I, I grew up in uh King of Prussia. So just outside of Philadelphia. So, um, yeah. Pennsylvania life, um, very, uh, very nice. I've, uh, I've been to Pittsburgh like twice. And, uh, I mean, God it is a, such a very underrated city because obviously when people think of Pennsylvania, if they think of Pennsylvania at all, they think Philadelphia. In fact, many people just think Philadelphia is like its own thing. They don't even know it's in Pennsylvania. Um, and Pittsburgh is just, yeah. just kind of out there. It's a very clean city. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's an old, uh, old still city. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think basically collapsed, uh, when was it maybe the seventies or so when the steel industry collapsed and then mm -hmm. became replaced just by tech and healthcare. Mm -hmm. Um, so with, uh, with the university of Pittsburgh, which is, uh, I think it, it depends on the year, but I, I think last I checked number three in NIH funding, just tons of research funding flowing to the university of Pittsburgh. Carnegie Mellon is their top, uh, computer and uh, robotics school, um, and, and the hospital systems and, and, uh, uh, the whole tech health ecosystem there is uh, really strong. It's got it all there, man. Pittsburgh is really cool. So how come like you decided to go to Robert Morris University? What was it about it? You just wanted to say like near the Pittsburgh area. I actually didn't even know it was in Pittsburgh. I thought it was like, um, like Maryland or Virginia for some reason. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Basically, um, uh, I don't know. L long story short, uh, just, just happened to have a, a full ride there and uh, wanted to get in and out as, as quickly as possible. So mm -hmm. ended up doing my undergrad and master's in uh, three years. And I uh, just wanted to, to start uh, getting out in the world and working and, mm -hmm. and uh, making things happen. Dude, you like, <laughs> you're like so young for being a CEO too. Like, like, I feel like aspire, aspire to do that kind of stuff. So, you know, how does it, how does it feel to be like, I mean, running this, I mean, running this psychedelic company at like at your age, like how does it, uh, how does it feel? Is yeah, I, I just feel incredibly lucky to be surrounded by the, the people I'm surrounded with uh, mm -hmm. just on a day-to-day -day basis. The, uh, the conversations I'm having in the rooms I'm in, it, it's just uh, amazing to, uh, to be a part of those conversations, which are mm -hmm. really on the cutting edge and, and maybe not happening anywhere else. I have always tried to surround myself with people who are smarter than me. And uh, I've been very fortunate to, to find myself in that position and, and just always learning and growing and uh, spending all my time and effort doing something that I, I find very meaningful. So I, I feel very fortunate. Yeah. How do you, so for your company though, so how do the, the pitch meeting goes? Cause like, obviously like you got to get investments to start doing this stuff. So how do like those pitches go? Like, what is the, what is the message and how do you get these people to, you know, invest in the, in the company? Um, so I went through again, Y Combinator, which is a bit of a different format mm. uh, than what I was used to. Um, so I, I, 
coming from more of a traditional biotech VC background, um, you're, you're dealing with a relatively smaller number of investors. These tend to be large VC funds. Um, you, you might get uh, a few, one or, or a few VC funds in your initial round called the, the seed funding round. Um, going through the Y Combinator process, it's very different. So uh, dealing with uh, smaller investors who focus across different industries who are industry agnostic, um, who tend to write smaller checks, who um, uh, some of, of them might be just angel investors. So as opposed mm -hmm. to VC funds, you, you just have individuals who are investing their own money. Um, and so uh, that results in a, a really wide variety of types of meetings. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's it's just you you get an email and the person wants to invest and you don't even need a conversation. Um, the extreme low end. Um, sometimes <laughs> very nice, just, very nice way to do it. I guess yes. Yeah, well, it's it's quick at least. Um, <laughs> Uh, but then you you also have uh, more involved diligence processes where you'll you might have a Zoom call, you might meet in person. Uh, there's typically a, a slide deck that you run through with the key points about the company and its competitive advantage and its team and the technology um, and the key aspects of, of a company that investors will want to know about. Um, from there, you'll typically have what's called a, a data room. So these mm -hmm. are, are all virtual now, but you'll just have a website where all this information about the details of your company is contained. So you'll you'll sign a confidentiality agreement. The investor will go into the data room, look at all the information, ask follow-up questions, go through their diligence process, um, talk with their, their experts in different areas of, uh, say, science or intellectual property. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually you, you negotiate a term sheet and an investment. How long did it take to get in the investment? Like I, I imagine that maybe you got some pushback or was it for the most part where people kind of on board with, you know, your guys' vision? Um, yeah, it, it was really a quick process. Um, I, I think uh, just all of the excitement about psychedelics mm. uh, really brought in a, a lot of people. Um, we were fortunate to also just have a, a great uh, industry environment of, mm. of people who had also often seen a personal uh, change in their lives or, or the lives of their friends or family through psychedelic therapy and, and who were very passionate about the space. Mm. Um, and so it, it wasn't always uh, educating people from ground zero. Often people would know more about psychedelics than, than I would. Um, so it, it, it's different for different investors. Some processes, again, very short, some are longer, but uh, we, we were fortunate to uh, have a fairly uh, straightforward process. Mm -hmm. Are you also are you, are you a Penguins fan, Steelers fan? Yeah, of course. You're in uh, Pittsburgh. You have to, because yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think the, I don't think the Flyers are doing well this year at all, honestly. But uh, <laughs> how do you about that? Yeah, what are you gonna do? How are the how are the Penguins <laughs> yeah, doing yeah. doing this year? Well, I, I don't uh, follow follow it too closely. Uh, you, you know, you have to be a fan, but a uh, little little busy with other things. So I can't tell you their their record at the moment. I'll have to. Have to That's okay. Later. What's uh, how, how do you feel about Kenny Pickett? Do you watch football at all or? Not too much. Again, okay. have to be a fan, but just not enough time. <laughs> That's okay. Um, yeah, man. I think. I mean, it's so it's so like exciting. I think um, honestly, just the whole psychedelic. Um, platform in general i think really because it's obviously like a huge growing field um and so i'm like very excited to to see where it goes do you think that um that purchasing psychedelics like legally like let's say from a company like yourself there's still like it's it would still be available to like 
people like that would use it rec re recreationally or is there kind of a hard um regulation on only for people with um disorders however i, I kind of imagine it where like you can get like with weed they're pretty i would say nonchalant with uh medicinal marijuana like i feel i know people that you know don't right. really need it but they you know they still get it um so do you think that it could be used recreationally one day or is it going to be strictly used for like uh, mental disorders and things of that nature yeah, we're focused purely on pharmaceuticals. So mm -hmm. the, these are drugs and and uh, they have to be prescribed by a doctor and it has to be supervised when you go into the therapy. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in that sense, psychedelics are going in a, a very different direction from cannabis, which I, I think is good because there's much, uh, much better science, much better evidence for efficacy in different disorders than, mm -hmm. than cannabis has. Um, but at the same time, we're also seeing this, this parallel uh, level of regulatory change uh, across the world, across the country. Mm -hmm. um, you now have, I, I think, two states, so Oregon and Colorado, where certain categories of psychedelics uh, have been decriminalized. And in those two states, there are actually regulated industries. So it's similar to cannabis, where there, there's still the, uh, the the federal law, but at the state level, you you have a regulated uh, industry of, of therapists and, and uh, possession that's legal. You have a large number of cities across the U.S. that have also decriminalized psychedelics um, as of uh, right now, I think there are 11 states that also have uh, legislation in the works to decriminalize. So I think in terms of that decriminalization, you're going to see a similar pattern to cannabis, but the medical side of things, I, I think is going to go very differently, which mm -hmm. I, I think is a good thing. So I guess it is important to mention then. So um, again, let's assume you get to human trials. You can't like, you can't prescribe people drugs so like you can't just like give them a you know a vial of whatever and let them go right they have to like come in and you you're the one you have professionals there dosing the the patient and then whatever the conditions are and then i guess after their trip then they would leave like you don't you can't like just give them a bottle or whatever right that's correct. Um, there are, you know, it, it depends on the substance and it depends mm -hmm. on the dose. Again, the, this is a very broad class of compounds. There are companies doing uh, at-home ketamine therapy. Mm, okay. Uh, so the ketamine is, is just shipped to the individual. And I believe the dose tends to be much lower there. Um, and so depending on the regulations, depending on the profile of the specific compounds, uh, then some of them may be take-home. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I do think Ultimately, here this is this is looking much further down the road, and, and certainly not our focus. Um, but I, I do think ultimately the wellness markets, so uh, you know everything outside of pharmaceuticals, uh, are going to be. Uh, I think they'll, they'll dwarf the pharmaceutical market for psychedelics. Mm. I think the the broader market is much much larger. Yeah, I think honestly, what is more uh, like surprising to me is like I, I listened to a couple of podcasts. Are you familiar with the Andrew Huberman? Huberman? The Huberman lab, yeah. are you familiar with him? Mm -hmm. He he put out an episode, I don't know, like of like alcohol. So like, and I'm sure you know, alcohol basically has literally almost zero like medicinal benefits. I, I think it's like it's literally zero. And so the way that, at least in America, like the way that we market uh alcohol, like, oh, I'm gonna have a drink with dinner, or I got home from a stressful day, I'm gonna have a drink of, you know, whatever. And there are compounds such such as psychedelics, but also like pharmaceutical drugs that have reputable and a lot of data of positive benefits and even cannabis but that is still a lot of people still like look have looked down on it and has a negative connotation but alcohol is fine 
And that is, you know, how do you see that? Do you see that mind flip, you know, uh, like, do you see it changing at all? Um, and yeah, what, like, how do you feel about, about that? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very, uh, weird how culture shapes attitudes towards drugs and how the use of drugs actually then shapes the culture. Mm. Um, and, and so I, I think what we're seeing is just a, a legacy of, uh, maybe Western European culture and alcohol use and, and the way that that interacts with, um, religion and, and broader culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, from what I see, the, the, uh, younger generation, the Gen Z is, uh, much more likely to use cannabis than alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think everything has its risks and benefits. I think we need a lot more research on cannabis. Um, I think the, the optimal, uh, amount of alcohol to consume, uh, according to the, the research I'm familiar with is, is zero. Um, so, <laughs> so generally no benefits. Um, and it, Commonly, you you hear this refrain that cannabis is safer than alcohol, and in, in many senses, that's true. But I, I think there are also risks here, especially mm-hmm. as the potency of of the compounds uh, gets higher and higher. There is a risk of psychosis. There there are uh, negative effects, um, and so I, I think what's needed is a, a very nuanced and a rational approach to drug policy and, and to our own personal attitudes towards drugs that mm-hmm. considers the science can considers the, uh, the real risks and the real benefits and, and, uh, acts accordingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to, um, ask you again, like, so how did you get to the position that you are in now? So you graduate from RMU, um, with your MBA and then you go through many jobs. I think it's like, you know, four or five or something like that. Um, so how did you get to the place where you are now where like now you're taking on uh, co-founder and CEO? Like what was that journey like? Yeah, I started in uh, in accounting and consulting, uh, mm-hmm. basically. So worked for uh, a couple of the the large international consulting and accounting firms, mm-hmm. um, and I, I started uh, in audit at the very beginning. Uh, and I went into audit because it's a good way to see many different areas of business, many different industries, and decide where you want to go. Um, and I, I found uh, the mergers and acquisitions side of finance much more interesting than audit. So so pivoted uh, into mergers and acquisitions and. Uh, that involved uh, buying and selling companies and involved the diligence process. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, arguably roughly half of uh, venture investing. So in, in venture investing, you're buying a stake into the company, you're helping the company grow, and then you're you're selling your stake in the company. Okay. So I used that finance skill set to then go into venture and from uh, venture, I, I began to take on more of a generalist role. So more of an investment role, more of an operations role in these companies, uh, began to focus more on uh, the, the biotech side. Um, uh, I, I was uh, in operations for maybe a, a dozen or so different spin-out companies, uh, different, different early stage science companies. Um, so had the hands-on experience. Um, and then from the investing perspective, I got to see the full life cycle of the life sciences from the very early stage companies to the late stage trials, publicly traded types of companies across many different industries. Mm. Um, and so that's primarily what built my, uh, my, my skill set, my mm. ability to then uh, kind of go out independently and uh, yeah. work with MindState. Now, what, what was, so like, what, what is it about business that like, kind of draws you to it? Cause like, I remember taking a, a, a like a business class sophomore year of high school I was like, oh, I don't know, maybe one day I'll become an accountant, like 16. And uh, man, I did not like it at all. I didn't like looking at the the accounting sheets. I know some people find that very satisfying. Um, I talked to a lot of my business friends who took 
you know, accounting or accounting majors in my undergrad. Um, you know, they say it's very difficult, but just something about business that like, when people ask me about business, I'm like, man, I would not ask me about, you know, stocks and anything like that. I I'm so out of the loop. I use acorns, bro. Like I, I do roundup. I, you know, I just, I kind of automate all that stuff. Um, I, you know, I get very excited about STEM. So what is it about business that, you know, was very exciting to you, very appealing to you? Uh, and, and why'd you go into that, that field? Um, I, I think in some sense, everything is business. Everything is, is mm. sales. You're, you're always, uh, you know, selling yourself. You're always selling an idea, uh, regardless of, of whether you're in STEM or uh, any other type of industry. So to me, uh, the the attractiveness of business was just the generalizability, the the ability to take some time to see many different things, to decide um, what really uh, inspired me and, and where my my skills and my passions and what the world needs uh, all intersected. Uh, so business was just a great platform to be able to explore. Mm -hmm. So how so you seem like the kind of guy that you're kind of at the forefront, you're talking to investors, talking to whoever you need to do to get the business done. How much time is spent like uh, talking to investors? How much time is spent or, or I don't know, doing something else with the company? Like how how is your time you know being spent right now? Uh, it tends to go in phases. So there mm -hmm. will be a fundraising phase and and really fundraising is a full-time job. Um so uh, in those phases, there will be lots of conversations, lots of meetings with investors. Uh, when I'm not fundraising, then it, it tends to be more balanced where there's a, a lot of working with the team. There's a mm. lot of um, just strategy and communications and operations, um, uh, lots of proactive planning and meeting people and exploring new opportunities. Um, so it's uh, no, no day is alike. It's, uh, it's different every day. So when, uh, when you're not when you're trying to, I know it's kind of difficult because, uh, you know, you're still, uh, you know, in the early stages of uh, your trials or animal uh, stages, I should say. Um, and I'm sure it's very busy right now. But when you're not doing this, if you have time, you know, what are some of your hobbies, man? What do you like to do? I like to go to the gym, like to uh, uh, music, definitely. I've been mm -hmm. a guitarist for uh, a long mm. time. Um, uh, I think uh, I'm also very interested in just um, altered states of consciousness and different mm. spiritual practices. Um, so uh, things like meditation, for example, and, mm. and float tanks and, and sweat lodges and, and all those kinds of things. Um, mm. So just, just fascinated with the ways in which our perception can fundamentally change and the ways in which we can uh, make contact with something that is profound or divine in some sense. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I, I think that's one of my, uh, my other obsessions that interfaces very nicely with psychedelics. But, I was going to say, uh, yes. Yes. Yeah, sensory, sensory deprivation tanks, right? Is that what you're referring to? Mm -hmm. Yes. How does it, how does it like feel? Cause I've always, um, I've definitely want to try that. Um, so how does that like feel like, cause I, I mean, isn't it, like almost like nothing, like what are you, like, what's the setup and, you know, has that work? Yeah. Different people react very differently. Anytime you're using one of these endogenous methods, right. Where mm -hmm. you're not introducing a, a foreign substance to the body. Um, uh, individual physiology has a, a large effect on what actually happens. So um, some people get in and, and just say nothing happened. That was extremely boring. And some people have just vivid hallucinations and sensations of, of you know, flying through alternate landscapes and, <laughs> and space and just crazy experiences. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, 
it's it's a uh, it's, it's typically a, a salt water formulation where you're just floating and the the tank closes so there's complete darkness and and when you remove uh, external sensory input now everything the brain is processing is just coming from within um, and so it's what it, one of the most uh, uh, popular frameworks for for neuroscience for viewing the brain is viewing the brain as uh, essentially a, a predictive processing machine. Mm -hmm. um, so taking bottom up input of sensory information and matching it with the top down uh, prior predictions. So the things you've learned about the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so float tanks, sensory deprivation tanks uh, remove the the external input. And so it's it's kind of um, maybe the, the opposite of psychedelics in some way where, mm -hmm. where everything is then uh, just your uh, the, the top down. Yeah. So interesting experience. You don't feel like claustrophobic at all, or you don't feel like, does that feeling ever come over you or? Uh, no, not me. Some, some people uh, do experience mm -hmm. that though. Now for your meditation though, is that like, is that, I don't know, is it religiously backed or is there like, is it spiritually? Like how, like, how do you meditate? Um, I, there are many different varieties of meditation and I, I'll, I'll rotate through different approaches. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it's not, uh, you know, I, I might take a, a Vipassana meditation. I'm, I'm not a Hindu, but, uh, I might, you know, use the techniques. Um, and you, you could argue that removing a technique from its spiritual and cultural grounding, um, uh, has, has its drawbacks, but, but yeah, meditation for me, um, while it, it tends to be spiritual, I, I don't tie it to, uh, mm. you know, a particular tradition from which it came. Sure. Well, Dylan, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on. I, I appreciate your time and consideration for coming onto the, the podcast here. And I'm very excited to see what your company does. Um, in the, in the, hopefully in the very near future, um, I, you know, it would be very interesting to see. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you for having me on. Hope to talk again soon here. Absolutely, man. If I ever Pittsburgh, we'll have to we'll run it up there and go get some uh, Permani Brothers. Um, Perfect. Actually, I think it's a little bit overrated, honestly, Permani Brothers. But people out there in Pittsburgh can let me know. <laughs> yeah, you're you're not allowed to say it, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, folks, that was episode twenty nine. I think I'm actually not really sure, but we'll see you next time.